Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, in one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Abraham Verghese, author of the novel The Covenant of Water. If you as a writer say, well, I can't be at your dinner party because I have to go write, the response you get is often a, well, be that way kind of thing. You know, like you're going to sacrifice us for this this task of yours. We'll be back with Abraham Verghese after these essential words. So June 2023 marks the 10-year anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material, 
with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My interview today is with physician, novelist, and nonfiction writer Abraham Verghese. His books include Cutting for Stone, The Tennis Partner, and My Own Country. He received the Heinz Award and a National Humanities Medal from Barack Obama in 2014. He was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship last month and spends his days as a professor and vice chair for the theory and practice of medicine at the School of Medicine at Stanford University. He has a reputation for his focus on healing and empathetic care. His new novel, The Covenant of Water, blends his deep knowledge of and enthusiasm for the medical world with his talent at sharing bold, sweeping stories. The Covenant of Water spans the years 1900 to 1977 in the state of Kerala in South India. The story focuses on three generations of a family that suffers a peculiar affliction. In every generation, at least one person drowns. At the center of the book is Big Amachi, meaning Big Mother, who the reader first meets when she enters an arranged marriage at the age of 12. The novel covers issues of caste and class, political power, religion, medical ingenuity, alongside joy, tragedy, and love. We began the discussion with me asking Abraham Verghese if he took the lessons he learned from writing Cutting for Stone into the creation of this new novel. You know, I I, uh, I think I was humbled because it's very hard to do that. I mean, obviously you take some lessons away about efficiency and scene setting, but my big epiphany was to realize that really begin on ground zero all over again with every novel. You know, nothing is handed to you. You know, this is not the second floor you're building on top of the first floor. So I'm sad to say that I really did not find that I had any major breakthroughs having had one novel under my belt. I had to discover the story and uh, wrestle through the process all over again. Perhaps that's unique to me. I think some writers don't have much use for editors or so they say. I find that uh, I lose all objectivity about my writing once it crosses 
25 or 30 pages and I, I really need somebody I trust, an editor, you know, someone who's in the business. And my agent serves that function to some degree, but even more so an editor. So no, I didn't take anything away. Another thing you said was you're going to outline the next time. Did you do that? And I did. <laughs> yes, I did. I have this wonderful whiteboard uh, in my living room, which is where I work. And, uh, you know, I, I like to draw. And so I had sketched out this whole map of the story because I think that was the thing that I felt with Cutting for Stone had made that book so so long in the writing uh, that I didn't quite know where everything was going. And so with this one, I was determined to try. So I had my little blueprint, but I must have uh, erased that whiteboard maybe 10 times. I took photographs each time so I could save the iterations. And so after a while, I realized this, this whiteboard is more like a diary charting where I have been rather than where I'm going. <laughs> So, no, that didn't really work for me. Uh, I still keep hoping that it'll work one day. As far as the covenant of water goes, um, I'd love to talk about the origin of the idea for it. You know, it covers almost 80 years. You start in about 1900 in, in South India, in Kerala. You have characters there, but you also have a character who's in Scotland who eventually makes his way into India. And you're interweaving these two stories. And part of what you say in the back of the book was some of this was some tales from your mother and her writing about her life. So can you talk a little bit about like, what was the kernel of this for you that you, you couldn't let go of that brought you to 700 pages? In terms of the genesis of the book, I think I uh, was looking for a geography for another novel. And I think geography is very much like a character. Maybe it's the most important character in a book. And uh, the first book, the first novel I had written was set in Ethiopia, which I knew well, or well enough, because I was born there and grew up there. You know, yeah, but I lived so much of my life in America. So I, I could well have set the book in America. And then when my niece was five years old, uh, my brother's daughter, she asked my mother, her grandmother, uh, and, and my niece was born in America. My mother by then was living in Miami, having lived in India, Africa, and New Jersey, and now Miami. And so she asked my mother, the little girl asked my mother, Amachi, what was it like when you were a little girl? And my mother was so taken with the question and um, the differences between their two worlds, you know, at that age, that she began to hand write in her beautiful uh, you know, handwriting this uh, almost 100-page notebook filled with illustrations. She was very good at sketching, describing her life. And there was very little in there that was new to me. I mean, I knew Kerala pretty well. We'd go there on summer vacations regularly and... Later in medical school, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. So I knew intimately the world that she was describing. But that seeing that little notebook, uh, which was much then copied and reproduced to give to all her three sons and their children, it became apparent to me that, you know, this was not just the geography, but 
but you know my mother in particular and um you know some of the strengths of her character and my my grandparents not to describe them specifically but to have characters who had some of those qualities in terms of the length you know i actually don't i don't remember worrying about the length per se and i don't think that a writer really should i mean at some level you should of course if it's you know pages that have no reason for being there but um i love epic long stories and uh you know i think the novel is the one instrument that i know of that can suspend time what else do you know that can do that you know take you out of this life if the writer's done a good job and have you enter this world and you suspend your disbelief and generations go by and then you're finally done it's Tuesday, and that 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 magic of you know disappearing in a book for me works so much more powerfully when it is a big long book. So I think I'm not instinctively averse to big books, um, either in the writing or the reading. I recognize that we're in a society where there's a phenomenon where our attention span seems to be getting shorter, but I do believe that um, those are the very people who are destined to, I think be surprised and rewarded by what a big book not necessarily mine you know a big compelling novel offers them i think something that can be really challenging to pull off in any book doesn't matter the length but is when you have two narratives how you bring them together so you know in your novel you you start off with this young woman who's 12 and she's in Kerala and pretty rural and she's about to be married to someone who's maybe about 40. And we learn about her life and what it's like to go to this estate, which is called Parambilt, for her life. And then you also switch to this, this man named, named Digby. So at first the wife, she's just the bride. We don't know her name. And Digby is... Um, Growing up in Scotland, his mother has a tragic death. He goes to medical school against all odds, and he ends up in India. And how you weave them together um, is such finesse, and it seems like craft-wise that it's really hard to do. And I'm just curious about your effort to do that and how you, if you saw that all at once or if it just came to you organically through the writing uh, well, thank you for, you know, the generous comments. I, I think that I, I did not see it all at once. I think that I probably conjured up Digby at a later point in the story. And Digby, of course, needed a backstory. And then it became clear to me that, you know, they, there are parts of the novel where the reader, uh, you know, some heavy stuff comes down at the end of that part one. And the reader needs something to, you know, clear the palate, <laughs> you know, relieve their distress, if you like, if they are distressed, because there's some really heavy stuff that goes down. And so this complete change of scene, the change of geography, I think, I hope achieves that. And so then it became apparent that by weaving these two narratives separately, then you'd have this one moment when, you know, they, these two lives that seem completely disconnected all come together uh, in one in one place. Uh, I would be 
disingenuous if I said that I saw that ahead of time. I mean, I think most of the time you you finish a novel or you finish much of it, and then you begin to sort of appreciate things you can do in retrospect that you know make it um, make it work even better. And I think the 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 reader reads all that and thinks, "Oh, this is so." clever but really it's not that i think it's more you have delivered the raw stories and then as as you keep pushing forward opportunities present themselves to connect this in interesting ways i must say that i found it easier to do that than when people and many great novelists do this they they have different voices take over different characters i mean completely different first person voices and I think that's always a, in my hands at least, I think that's dangerous because there's a risk that the reader will like one voice more than the other and, you know, sort of pull back when the next voice comes back again, you know? Um, so even though this might seem, you know, like a clever move, it's nowhere as difficult as I, as I think it would be to have a different voice speaking when you've gotten used to one voice, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I was thinking as you were talking about this, because I know that you're a doctor too, if you see any of these as different, like almost medically, if you see the book, like, for instance, I could see how you could see the setting which is so much about water in this rural green lush place is like the vascular system and of this book and that you could see maybe the characters are like different organs in a body that is the time period or something like I don't know I mean I'm just that's just popping out of my mouth but I'm just curious if you ever see it in a clinical way that helps you creatively. No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I'm always embarrassed when readers and, you know, discerning critics like you credit with me with more intelligence and more forethought than I am possessed with. Uh, but I do think that, you know, uh, what medicine does allow, and there are some parallels, which is why I bring it up, is that you know, very often when you're meeting a patient, um, or you're, you know, you're attending in the hospital and you see a, a patient with the residents, you're, you only have pieces of the information. And the essential task of medicine is to complete all the disparate pieces such that they make a whole, you know, um, so that you try and be parsimonious with all these multiple observations and come up with one, you know, one explanation rather than 10 explanations. So that that desire to connect things, Occam's razor, we call it both inside and outside of medicine. I think that influences some of my, or, or there's a parallel between that and the writing process, you know, where you're always trying to connect things to make them one organic whole. And I should share with you a, a surprise I had. Uh, I auditioned for and I won the role of of uh, recording the audiobook of my of my of covenant of water and uh, i say that with some respect because i think it is not an easy thing to to record an audiobook you really have to perform the book you have to as i learned you have to convey different people's dialogues by slight inflections of pitch and tone and voice but not overdo it 
anyway, so I had a two and a half week experience of reading my book. And during the reading, I found myself at times moved as I was in the writing and the revising by certain scenes. But more than that, I found I made connections between things that I swear I'd never intended. I'd never consciously intended to connect things, but there they were, and it was quite obvious for me to, to see them. So, you know, I think that the subconscious is busy trying to put things together, and sometimes you're not even aware of it. In medicine, you know, you have to be careful. It's a trap, but sometimes you just have a a gut sense about something you're hearing. You know, you hear a story, and it's like hearing a musical refrain, and you recognize the song. And so you go asking the patient to to fill out more of the story you have in the back of your mind. And sometimes that's exactly what pays off. And you can call it instinct or you can call it, you know, anything you like. Sometimes it's a trap. You you wind up having a cognitive bias that leads you down the wrong road. But so there are those parallels, I would say. There's a great sense that, you know, God is in the small details. And so the small details matter, but they matter as an organic whole, but in the way that they connect together. Yeah. And maybe that's, you know, another thing. I mean, I can't speak cause I'm not a doctor and I don't, I'm not in your head, but like that maybe the body and stories have in common. I mean, when a body comes into you that's sick, it's, it's a story, you know, the body is a story and it's telling you something. And same thing with your own mind when you're writing that you can see things later like you were talking about the power of your subconscious is that like they both kind of show that things are, are incomplete, but also like that there's this other maybe mysterious level going on that the eye can't see. That's always generating or changing or morphing for us to keep learning. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think that's very true. And one of the most, most compelling moments I think in, reading fiction for me is when you know the reader when the character's subconscious comes breaking through and awakens them to something that you as a reader probably already knew but you're watching it unfold and the character you know that sort of breaking through of the subconscious is often an epiphany for the character sometimes it is for the reader as well at that very same moment so yeah there's a lot of parallels and and i think um you know, patients give us a history when they come to us. We take a history. Well, the word story is embedded in that. And if I'm known for anything in particular in medicine, one of my great interests has always been how much we can read the body for the clues it offers, you know. Um, the body has been showing physicians for 100 years or more, many more, maybe 200 years. It's been revealing clues as to what's going on, and you just need some skill in how in examining the body. It's a skill that's rapidly waning, which is why I I spend a lot of time celebrating it and teaching it. So yeah, I think there are those parallels, all yeah, as you point out. But I'm I'm certainly not conscious of them as I'm writing. I think it's uh, the two worlds, medicine and writing, feel not separate to me. They just feel like me doing my thing, you know and. Uh, in the daytime, I'm doing certain things, and then in the evening, I'm doing certain other things. And 
it is often the same lens that's certainly the same person, the same lens that's going back and forth. So, yeah, it's hard for me to say anything more specific than that. One of the basis of of this story is is this family. So um, your young bride, and and I'm curious um, why she was kind of the bride for a long time before she really had a, a, a more uh, specific identity, goes to this estate to marry this man much older. He has a child from his first wife who died named Jojo. And she learns that there's this condition in this family that, uh, that many generations have died from drowning. And some try to stay away from water. Her husband didn't want to hold Jojo back. Um, so didn't really put any parameters on, on her. But as she goes through her life and, and ages and has other children and for her husband too, this this drowning is a real condition. And so there's it it asks many questions, I think, of the book and the reader, but curious about water and why this was interesting to you. I mean, some of it I think is from your your mother's stories, but also if that made you think about water differently before and after you wrote this. You know, I think one of the most impressive things about Kerala when you visit, as you know is the abundance of water and the, you know, 44 rivers coming down to the sea and countless lakes and lagoons and backwaters. And so I don't quite know at what point this came about, but I think the idea of having a family where the water wasn't a blessing, it was a curse in many ways for that particular individual was an interesting one. I don't think that I, uh, I think I came to it organically. And I also had been interested in a, a, you know, a report of a very rare condition, a kindred, a family in Pennsylvania with something like this, you know, and without without giving away the whole nature of the condition for your readers, I, I think so. There were some very genuine medical elements that that I was building on, but uh, I also had a lot of license given the water that was abundant to to make that so big to make that condition the the disease such a such an entity in this book did it make you think differently about water i don't think that no i can't say that it did i think um i think that in imagining what it is like for someone who gets disoriented in water i, I was more empathetic and more conscious of how much i took for granted in my own interactions with water. I mean, I love being in water. I love swimming. I have a healthy respect for it. But to to be fully aware of how much, how, mu- how many of your senses are involved in allowing you to stay oriented and afloat, uh, I'm not sure that I quite appreciated that before this book. The Covenant of Water, which is the title, I think it first appears about page 395, where... Um, you're kind of from the perspective of Amachi, the mother who was the bride. She says, Yes, old man, yes, eyes open to this precious land and its people, to the covenant of water, water that washes away the sins of the world, water that will gather in streams, ponds, and rivers, rivers that float the seas, water that I will never enter. So curious about that line. It was in italics, so I wasn't sure if it was from somewhere else. And this was... I think in a scene where Amachi's she has a son 
named Philip Pose. He's a writer. He's kind of head of the household after his father dies. They have, I don't know if you would call it an indentured servant, but there was kind of a, a servant cast issue going on in the book that we can talk about named Shamuel. And that's kind of where this line comes in. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the, the, the titles are interesting. I'm sure you've had wonderful conversations with all your many guests about the nature of titles. But in my, my, my own mind, I think titles um, need to be slightly mysterious. And hopefully they resonate for readers in completely different ways. Uh, and, you know, whatever explanation I give for the title is not the explanation. It's whatever the reader thinks. I'm, I'm a firm believer in that, that the writer and the reader are in this collaborative venture and this little movie that the reader creates in their head is as much theirs as it, as it is mine. So the interpretations they make are as valid as any that, you know, any other reader makes. But I like this sense of, you know, water being essential to our bodies. You know, we are two-thirds water. And in Kerala, water being essential to livelihood and life, you know, without the annual monsoons, as much damage as they might cause, nothing would happen. You know, so everything is in this in this cycle. It's a covenant that's almost um, repetitive and, and, and reminiscent of the life and death cycle. So I don't think I was getting at much more than that than just hinting at a at an idea of you know water covenant which can have many many different levels of resonance i hope for the reader yeah i think covenant is such a powerful word isn't it though <laughs> yeah that's how we came to it i think you know sometimes you you love a word you know you find a word that just seems to convey the mood and tone of the book you want and that was certainly one you know yeah, it's so serious, and it also has these religious connotations as well. I don't know if you know this, but we actually had a working title, I did anyway, for the longest time called the Maraman Convention, which is actually now a chapter heading. And it's about this old religious convention that the characters go visit. And, you know, I liked that the title was mysterious. It sounded grand in a way that most readers wouldn't even understand, well, what, what is this thing? It sounds grand, but I don't know what it is. But ultimately, I think we all decided that it was a bit too mysterious, that it was almost almost opaque. And um, and so I, I don't quite know when we stumbled onto the covenant of water, but after tossing around many titles, I mean, I like that for all the reasons you explained. Well, let's talk a little bit about Amachi. So she is the young girl that goes from rural um, India and is is fairly poor to Parambil to marry this man who's much older than her. And we really see her whole life all the way, you know, her whole thing. We see her birth children. We see her as a grandmother. We see her as a wife. We see her at 12 years old when I don't think she really consummated her marriage for maybe like eight or nine years when she was living with the husband because she was so young and she sensed the ghost of the past wife 
in the house. So there's also like an, a ghost element and she has this extended community there with the lower caste men that are there to serve and help. There's an elephant. She befriends. She's very um, loyal to her, her faith. So just curious about creating this character and bringing her through her whole entire life in a novel. I mean, I think she, um, the fact that she would seem so esoteric to so many readers, Western readers was, you know, a great motivation to, to describe her. And yet in many ways, she wasn't atypical for that time and that community. So I think one of the things that is often lost in discussions about arranged marriages is how how often they turn out to be great precisely because you know families have screened for individuals who are compatible by virtue of having been brought up similarly and come from good family values and stuff family and so on and i think uh in the era of my great-grandmother and my grandmother it wasn't uncommon for a child to be a girl to be married at the age of, you know, 10 or 11. But it was understood that this was, and she was often marrying a boy who was also 10 or 11 or 8, you know, and she would just become another girl in this household. In fact, recently, I one of my aunts, and she was telling me about, she was showing me photograph albums, and she says, you know, this, this, she was a little girl, she was married very young, and, you know, went into the household where there were lots of other girls and boys. And she was very close to her mother-in-law. And she one day went to her mother-in-law and says, that annoying boy, you should send away from this house. The annoying boy was her husband, you know, her, her, her husband and the, the mother-in-law. And, I mean, so there was an innocence about the way these children came into another family, married, but really no more than just another another child growing up there until such time as you know both both uh, both individuals are of age when they're more sort of formally allowed to be together and i think the other thing that really impressed me whenever i would visit care was to go to these ancestral homes and see several generations in the same house you know and that they'd all spent their entire lives in this one somewhat you know restricted world but a complete world there was as as much richness in their life as there are in the most in the lives of you know people who are great luminaries it's the same richness so with with your novel you have um you have a lot of medicine in there and i want to get to that but you also have artists you have painters and sculptors who their life really finds so much meaning through the creative process and working with their hands that way and having the freedom to do that. Like for instance, one of them is a woman. So her, she questions when she gets married, if she'll have the same kind of freedom and one, it gets scarred so that maybe he can't do the art that he once did, which was art and medicine. So curious about probing into the visual arts in your characters. Yeah. I'm not sure at what point, that came about. It's uh, as we mentioned earlier. It's not as though I consciously set out saying, "Oh well, I'm going to have a character who's an artist." I think some of these things emerge organically. You know, when it began to develop, I liked the idea of having 
great artistic genius was a woman. Part of it may have been that I was doing a lot of research on a period and noticed that for the most part, the only art and painting sculptures you saw were those by men, uh, largely because they were the ones who had the opportunity and the leisure to sit and be painting and sculpting and promoting their works. And it's not something that a woman would have had the luxury to do. So, you know, once I sort of hit on that, I certainly kept pushing it for all it was worth for that for that same reason that it was unusual and going against the grain in India. And, you know, that makes a character kind of stand out. Did you find something when you wrote about artistry and being an artist that was similar to writing or medicine that is just manifest a different way? Actually, I think it did. The great irony about writing is that it's a fairly solitary pursuit and it requires a lot of time. And yet uh, you would think that your loved ones would really be attuned to that. And in a funny way, the very thing they might have admired about you at one time becomes a source of tension, you know? If you as a writer say, well, I can't be at your dinner party because I have to go write, the, the, the response you get is often a, well, be that way kind of thing, you know, like you're going to sacrifice us for this this task of yours. So there's always that tension that, you know, for, for the most part, art requires time. It requires a lot of aloneness. And paradoxically, the people who love you will struggle at times to give you that just as you will struggle at times to, you know, to understand your role with them that might need you to sacrifice some of that time. So I think it's a constant tension. And and I had fun playing with that in the book. Well, it's interesting because in the book, so much of it comes back to medicine. You know, you have someone who, uh, you know, Digby, who ends up taking care of lepers in a, in a sanctuary for them. You have a character who becomes a surgeon um, in the later years. So we're in the 70s now. And, you know, we're, we're learning more about the condition through medicine. So it seemed like on the page that would be really fun for you because that's what you know so intimately and you can bring it back. And then you also have to make it digestible to readers who don't know medicine. I feel that one shouldn't have to be apologetic about writing about medicine because, first of all, medicine to me is nothing more than life plus plus. It's life at its most acutely observed. It's life at its most intimately lived. I never feel apologetic about writing about medicine. Or conversely, I, al I always feel that most of us live in some denial of our own mortality as though, you know, these dangers and these things don't exist around us. I wanted to ask you about secrets. You have a, a matchmaker in there and they're kind of, um, you know, as you were talking about the importance of arranged marriages and that's what happened in the, in the communities and the culture back then that, um, you know, maybe there's some fear that you can't be matched with a certain person because of things that are in their lives or because of secrets. And he's basically saying, it's not that you don't have secrets. It's just that not all secrets are meant to deceive people. Like not all secrets are coming from a bad place to ruin your life. And it seemed like secrets was such a big part of the novel. So just wanted to ask you about that. So I think because in that era that I'd write a book 
and even now arranged marriages are so common and since you're so dependent on the reputation of that family from whom you're looking to make an alliance or with whom you're looking looking to make an alliance the slightest rumor or slur on their character sometimes gets exaggerated and becomes a main cross that a, a family can never rid themselves of. always impressed with that the fickleness of this and the unfairness of it and so part of my desire to explore that or to write about it in in that detail is because it had stayed with me the secrets mattered so much in this context i think they matter all the time but they matter very much there and oftentimes whatever was being concealed was somewhat trivial sometimes it was not uh, and yet it would wind up bringing a family together in this one task of making sure no one knew about something that usually as it turned out everybody knew but it was always a bit interesting to observe can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer well, i think one of the many books that have influenced me was the world according to garp by john irving especially the first chapter the very opening because of the number of things that are going on in the first paragraph so uh, the first paragraph is boston mercy and it begins like this garp's mother jenny fields was arrested in boston in 1942 for wounding a man in a movie theater this was shortly after the japanese had bombed pearl harbor and people were being tolerant of soldiers because suddenly everyone was a soldier but Jenny Fields was quite firm in her intolerance of the behavior of men in general and soldiers in particular. In the movie theater, she had to move three times, but each time the soldier moved closer to her until she was sitting against the musty wall, her view of the newsreel almost blocked by some silly colonnade, and she resolved she would not get up and move again. The soldier moved once more and sat beside her. And I love that paragraph and what follows because of the fact that it it identifies so many people in one or two sentences, both Garp, his mother, and it lays out the future, what's about to come in the very next paragraph. So that was a major influence, the ambition of the novel and the cleverness of that opening chapter. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft or just something you liked. Well, uh, something that I really wrestled with, uh, understandably, was the very first lines in my chapter for the reasons that I described. Um, you know, and I think I had a catchy line in mind to begin with, a direct quotation or a direct uh, dialogue from someone speaking, but I wound up pushing it to the second paragraph uh, and I can't tell you the number of times I wrestled with this with this particular passage. So this is the opening of chapter one. The chapter is called Always, and the time is 1900 Travancore, South India. She is 12 years old, and she will be married in the morning. Mother and daughter lie on the mat, their wet cheeks glued together. The saddest day of a girl's life is the day of her wedding, her mother says. After that, God willing, it gets better. 
Soon she hears her mother's sniffles change to steady breathing, then to the softest of snores, which in the girl's mind seems to impose order on the scattered sounds of the night. From the wooden walls exhaling the day's heat to the scuffing sound of the dog in the sandy courtyard outside. Do you want to share more about why you chose that? What was made it hard? Or... Yeah. Well, what made it hard was first beginning with this girl. And I thought the, the catchy line or the, the line that I thought was quite dramatic that I wanted to begin with was a line of dialogue. The saddest day of a girl's life is the day of her wedding. Her mother says, after that, God willing, it gets better. But after agonizing over it for a long time and trying various versions, it's clear the reader didn't have quite enough information for that line to have. Instead, it began with, she is 12 years old and she'll be married in the, married in the morning. Mother and daughter lie on the mat, their wet cheeks glued together. So now you at least know who's there and the context. Um, but I think, you know, if readers knew how much time one spends trying to get this right, and of course, it's critical because it's the opening scene of the novel. Where do you write? I write in my living room only because, unlike most living rooms, uh, now that I live alone, I don't really have a sofa covered with lace over the headrests and so on. I, I decided that living rooms were a complete waste of time, and it was one of the biggest rooms in the house with the uh, best windows. And so I just put a huge whiteboard on one wall and cleared out all the furniture except for a bookcase, a desk, and a second desk that moves up and down on which I can uh, put my computer. And I'm always writing on a desktop on a big screen. Obviously, I can often write on the road, on a laptop, or even on paper. But I would say that my preference is to be in the spot that I just described. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I typically walk or else I sketch. I can lose many hours just noodling in a sketchbook, or I can walk, and I'm either not listening to anything as I walk and just being intent on what's around me, or else I, I'm listening to an audiobook, which sometimes is a really helpful thing to completely clear the palate and allow me to go back again. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I rarely show it to anyone but the editor I'm working with, because I found that for the most part, their reactions uh, of family and loved ones aren't helpful. I will often have my partner read it back to me because I often like to sort of sit apart from the piece of paper and hear it coming back at me. And it's nice to see their reactions and to get their feedback, but I'm much more focused on the sound of it. And if it's working for me, if it doesn't work for me, then I know it won't work for my editor. So. That's how I do it. How have you dealt with rejection? I think rejection is hard. There's no easy answer to that. But uh, uh, I love this particular song by James Brown called That's Life. And, uh, you know, the, the, the chorus goes like this. I've been a puppet, a pauper, pirate, a pawn and a king, up and down, over and out. But I know one thing. Each time I find myself flat on my face, I just pick myself up and get back in the race. So no one wants rejection. Uh, but when you push your way through it, um, you know, I think it is 
getting back from the rejection and moving forward that makes you stronger and better. And what is your favorite word? Probably visceral, because it straddles uh, both my worlds. It's uh, partly medical, but it's also very much in common usage. And I, I have been accused by my partner of using that word too much, but I think it's, it's a lovely word that I enjoy. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your thoughts about your book. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I wish you luck. If you like today's show with Abraham Verghese, author of The Covenant of Water, check out my interview with Priyanka Champaneri on her novel, The City of Good Death. We talked about starting with setting, finding freedom when writing about the mythological, and how her characters wanted to avoid marriage into a family where a tragic death occurred. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And please send some 10-year anniversary love. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with T.C. Boyle, Sebastian Barry, and Curtis Sittenfeld. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.